we have a visitor who has graciously bestowed her time upon us to come and chat with us about the book and why we chose it and various other things. Dr. Larson Heckley teaches courses in Victorian literature, the novel, and women writers, both on campus and on semesters abroad. She edited Anne Murphy Jameson's Shakespeare's Heroines for Broadview Press, and her essays have appeared in Victorian Poetry, Literature Compass, and Religion and Literature, as well as in edited collections. Her current research examines the rise of the term expatriate in the 19th century as distinct from other terms for travelers, especially as those terms are invoked for the overseas lives of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Charlotte Bronte, and George Eliot. The NEH, the National Humanities Center, and the Mellon Foundation have supported her research. She graduated from UC Riverside, earned her master's degree at the UT Austin, and completed her doctorate at UC Berkeley. And on a more personal level, we do want to mention she has taught both of us with honesty, kindness, and an extremely intelligent register, which has both encouraged our love for literature and has personally encouraged both of us to create and continue this podcast. Dr. Sherry Larson Heckley, welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I was, I have been excited to be here for a couple of weeks. I didn't expect those kind words. Thank you oh, both. Oh, of, of course. course. First, we just wanted to start out by asking, you have been reading along with the book. Yes. Oh, with us with the book and yes. listening. What are your thoughts on the book? Okay, actually, true confessions. I yeah. was reading along with you with the book until I got so excited about it that I couldn't wait anymore, so I finished it. I loved it, clearly. Um, and it's not... I'm not usually a detective novel thriller mm-hmm. reader. Um, this might have been one I wouldn't have picked up if you all hadn't been doing the podcast. So I'm very glad to have this reason to read it and have the introduction to it and to be able to follow along with other people who are reading it too. As I said, I think it's a great choice. Um, not just because it won the Booker, but because of many of the things that it does. Um, but as I was reading, particularly probably The First Moon, I found myself thinking, ah, oh, there might be some people who think this is a weird choice mm-hmm. for two Westmont English majors, particularly two white, female, North American Westmont English majors. Um, so I guess that's, so I have, you know, my questions came up sort of around that. I think still why you might choose something that's unexpected um, is good for people to know because sometimes it's unexpectedness is part of what makes it a good choice. Mm-hmm. But just right off the bat as I was reading it, this often happens when you recommend a book to students here. Oh, wow, there's a lot of illicit sex in here that I didn't know was coming. And a lot, I think we've talked about this a little bit, not as much as I was afraid there was going to be, but it's picking up a little bit as we move through the book, just some brutal depictions of violence. Yes. Um I was afraid through the first moon that by the second and third moon I was going to be um, put through several narrations of torture, which I'm glad haven't happened um, because that's part of the context of the Sri Lankan War. Well, it's probably part of any war, but it's been a sort of broadcast part of the Sri Lankan Civil War. Um, But so why choose a book when there are books without this kind of violence or this attention to illicit sex? As you got a little further in, did you ever have any doubt? Why engage in those questions? And you're not running away from on the podcast either, and I think that's kind of a good thing. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was any doubt that we should not have done this book. Brenda and I have talked about it off the podcast, about how we feel like these conversations don't necessarily always happen on Westmont's campus, about sex, particularly like the homosexual relationships. And as to the torture and really violent depictions I feel like in a lot of ways we are very privileged to be in the U.S. and to be young females in the U.S. and we aren't exposed to that as much that this violence is a very real reality for a lot of people out there even to today because this takes place in the 1990s but even today this is a very real reality to people and coming to terms with that and having conversations about that is really important for us to understand our place and our privilege and how to work through that. 
that's what I've been feeling throughout reading this. For me, I didn't have any doubt when the book started getting sexualized or violent until my grandma started listening. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then my grandma called me and she was like, Friend Christine Case, you know I can't handle this stuff. Why would you tell me to listen to this? Why would you tell me to read this? And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, that. this is, that's real. I didn't even think about that. But I think that very similar to what Allison said, I think that the war in Sri Lanka is happening. The things that happen in this book, even if they are fictitious those sorts of things did happen, are happening. And so I think that to engage in conversations about that is just because they are happening. And I think I had a meeting with you, Dr. Larson Heckley, before this, and you said you have to jump into the conversation somewhere. And I'm not, I don't know if we're how much justice we're doing to the -hmm. culture Mm -hmm. or to the book or to Karuntalaka or to Molly as a character. But I think that at least we're having the conversation because Mm -hmm. I think that it is... I was more intimidated by the cultural aspect of it, representing that aspect of it, than the violence just because you're right, we are to females on a pretty liberal and sheltered campus. So it's it's definitely interesting, but I think we've also been so encouraged by people on campus that are listening. We, I mean, we've had peers come mm-hmm. up to us and be like, I knew nothing about Sri Lanka before you guys started reading that book. And we're just like yeah. walking to the DC. And I think that even if someone just listens to one second of the podcast and hears the title of the book and they go look it up and they go take interest in that, Mm -hmm. I think that we've done enough if just one person does that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just been an interesting thing watching how adding more diversity of, like, what I'm reading in sharing that with people opens up more questions for people and, like, like Bryn was saying, more just exposure to international novels that I never would have picked up and other people wouldn't have even heard of before this. If a small handful of your fellow students are more likely to be able to find Sri Lanka on a map mm. after this, yeah. you've, or to know that there's been a civil war. Yeah, because before this, I didn't even know there was a civil war in Sri Lanka. Like, I knew nothing about Sri Lanka at all. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really good point. So, uh, can I ask, did your grandma keep reading? Yes, she did, because I... I promised her that when we, I I told her to just keep reading with us. And I promised her that if she did that, I would warn her if there were, there was torture. So in our last episode, episode four, Mm -hmm. Allison did a little trigger warning and my grandma called me and she was like, thank you for the trigger warning. (laughs) So, um, yes. And I think that was a really good call by Allison because we were actually in the middle of filming and she was like we need to run everything back and do a trigger warning for sexual assault for violence Mm -hmm. for torture for all these different things that happen in this chapter I think think this author has also just done a really good job of portraying violence without going overkill all the time I would agree yeah I don't I would want to be careful to make it feel like that's all this book was about. I just know from reading Mm -hmm. with people in this community, very often that ends up being where attention gets focused. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's a whole lot more going on here literarily. There's a whole lot more going on here thematically, culturally, as Mm -hmm. you're saying. Question number two. (laughs) Excited. Um, And actually, this is my only other question that I really have for you. What have you done with that culture? How You seem to have managed the cultural distance really well. in thinking about catching up with Sri Lankan history, thinking about the Sinhalese Tamil conflict, being able to do everything from pronounce 
Karan Talakala and Mali Ameda to thinking about um, some of the places of Buddhism and Hinduism and how are you keeping up with a culture that's not yours in this novel? I would have to give a lot of credit to Bryn. She has done a lot of extensive research outside of the podcast and within the podcast she's like kept she's like the one who looks and tracks the themes and a lot of the culture and stuff show up in the themes especially with religion Mm. and so she has been done a great job of tracking those and like what we've learned in the past through the novel what we are learning now how it relates culturally like she and she keeps a glossary of things that if we don't know she like can call up like she's just done a lot of that work and I like appreciate that so much. She's giving me too much credit guys. I think a lot of it is if you see something you don't know have it be your immediate reaction to go look it up um and I think a lot of this book has been doing that. I remember in the first moon we had over 20 words in the chapter that were specific to Sri Lankan culture and we had to make an entire glossary because we couldn't understand integral parts of the culture that were being brought up time and time again taking the time to pay attention to those things yeah i think also it's just really it's just genuinely really interesting to Mm -hmm. us we i mean almost every day we're texting each other about something we found out about some part of the culture that we just happened across how we were talking to someone randomly about our podcast and they're like oh i actually have insight on sri lanka on this culture that you're literally talking about and so i think that we have tried as much as we can to adopt a stance of not knowing and just learning. But I will say that one of the things I've appreciated about listening to you is that you've set yourself up as model readers, not because you've become experts on Sri Lanka, but because you are just sort of unquenchably curious. Mm -hmm. The story has really caught you in everywhere you're listening and you want to know. And it seems to me like if you've got a good book like this that's telling a story well, and you're paying any attention, it should make you curious about the world that's not mm-hmm. yours. And that's part of why in this department we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Because if you can get there through a story, you might be able to get there in a conversation with a person. When you're excited about something and then other people are excited, you're like, oh, I just want to I just want to hold on to it and keep know as going. much as I can and keep yeah. going. And you set up a great community. Yeah. Well, you, what's your next book going to be? I don't know. Well, thank you so much. Did you have any more questions? That's... I. Those are my main questions, and Perfect. it's fun to talk about it. Fun to talk about the book. Fun to keep listening to the conversation about you two, but also thank you. I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you, really. Thank you so much. We've really enjoy your participation. This thank is you. just pure pleasure. Thanks, you two. Now let's get down to business. Bow bow bow. Bow bow bow. Bow. And we are back with Bring on the Books. Allison, how did you like having Dr. Larson Heckley's voice grace our podcast? Oh, it's been the best podcast episode so far. I mean, it was amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and it was so fun having her here and engaging in conversation with us. I loved it. I think it was the best thing we've done for the podcast so far. I agree. I'm so glad we did it. And I hope that you guys enjoyed because now you not only get the amateur voices of students, but you get the voice of someone who's actually worked their whole life <laughs> to speak and write well. So yeah. you're welcome for that. She want to take us through the content overview of what has happened in the fifth moon. I would love nothing more. We left off on a huge, intense cliffhanger with Molly being the Ma- in the Mahakali's grasp. As chapter five opens, Molly is being eaten by the Mahakali. However, Dr. Renee, his helper, comes to the rescue and tells the Mahakali that it isn't allowed to take Molly before his seventh moon and that, quote, 
I know what you are doing, and we are not scared. There are rules even you cannot break. End quote. She takes Molly to safety and tells the Mahakali that she will come back and drive him away. And then her and Molly leave. They skedaddle out of there. And she warns Molly that after a seventh moon, she can't do anything to help him. And Molly admits that Cena agreed to teach him how to whisper if he joined Cena's cause. Dr. Renee admits that she can that she herself can teach Molly how to whisper and takes him to a sort of sea of dreams where they can visit people in their dreams. He first visits Jackie and tries to tell her that she needs to find the negatives. He then visits Dee Dee and tells him that he must help Jackie. He finally visits his mother and we learn that he told his mom that he made it to Missouri and had Thanksgiving with his dad and his dad's new family when in reality we know that his father died before he could make it. And we get a really deep look into his mother's thinking and how much she was hurt by Molly and his dad. And it's just a really, like, heartbreaking scene, really powerful. Everyone starts to wake up, and Molly goes back to Jackie one more time and sings a song to help her remember where the negatives are. When Jackie wakes up, she pulls out the album that he was, like, singing from and finds all of the negatives Molly tells Jackie to make a thousand copies and to put them all over Colombo. In the next section, Dr. Renee tells Molly that he must go with her to finish up and enter the light, but Molly wants to stay so he can find his killer and make sure Jackie finds Viron. And we learn who Viron is. I think we've learned previously, but we get a reminder. He's the guy from the Photoshop place that he would get his photos developed at. Molly asks if the big bad is the Mahakali or if there's something bigger than it. And Dr. Renee answers by asking, quote, Do you know nothing of the country that has fed and clothed you? There isn't one Satan that we have to destroy. There are hundreds of devils and thousands of yakas roaming every road and every street. And then Molly asks, Ghost, ghoul, preta, devil, yaka, demon. Did I get the hierarchy right? There's no hierarchy to this chaos, child. Even pretas are up to no good. She then goes on to explain the different kinds of demon, ghosts, and pretas, and yakas there are, and what they do, and what they want from people. Which I'm really glad that you touched on that now, because I'm actually going to bring that up, because I think that we might actually be getting an insight here to Sri Lankan cultural beliefs mm. mm-hmm. based on how they speak of the demons, ghouls, and devils and how they feel like they participate in their lives. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting conversation for later. Molly promises to come back to the light before his seventh moon, but Dr. Renee doesn't believe him, which I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see if he actually follows through with his promise. I wouldn't believe him either. I also want to mention that because we're closing on the section with Dr. Renee, on page 275, she asks him, are you sure you were killed? Mm, yeah. And that was an interesting idea to me that came up again on page 288 when a closeted homo ghost asks him, are you sure? When Molly reveals that he didn't kill himself. We also realize in that section that only those that kill themselves might have access to the light. So mm. I think it's interesting that Dr. Renee brought up the option of suicide and that it was then touched on again. I'm just saying, I think yeah. we need to keep that in the back of our heads. Okay, I, I will. I haven't. I didn't catch that, so thank you. In the next section, we finally learn that the negatives are sealed behind two records and Molly had written a note to take them to the Fuji Kodak shop and to give them to Viron. Jackie runs to Dee Dee's room to tell him about it, but Molly is shouting at her not to tell him. Jackie and Dee Dee make their way to the shop but are being followed by a van. Scary. Jackie manages to shake them and they meet Viron at the back of the store. This van, more specifically, is a Delica van. And inside of it is the mask. Scary. 
who we see again briefly on page 289. And he's on the phone cursing at someone for letting Elsa get away. So I feel like just like the slight mention of the mask but not going into it is to remind us to come back to him Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, yeah, we're still wondering who that is. Mm -hmm. Because why wasn't he mentioned earlier? If he's so involved in wanting to capture Elsa, we've known Elsa and Kuga for many moons now. If he works so closely with Major Raja, why why haven't we met him before? I don't know. I think that's a worthy question to ask. Yeah. Like, why I now? I agree. I agree. Why now? Viron tells Dee Dee and Jackie that they have to go to the Arts Center Club to develop the first set for Mr. Clarantha and then another set for someone else. And just as a reminder, because I kind of forgot, Mr. Clarantha was the man he met at the party who offered to hang them up in his gallery if something ever happened to Molly. We learn that Molly's sister, Tracy, who lives in the US, promised to safeguard his pictures when she visited Colombo with their father. Molly makes these plans after seeing different artists and journalists work being confiscated or the people taken and killed. So he had a plan in place for his work. Jackie and Dee Dee find Clarantha and tell, that, and tell him that Viron sent them, and Clarantha knows that this means something happened to Molly. They tell him that Molly's probably dead, but they haven't found the body yet or seen the body yet, which they never will because, remember, Major Raja and the minister burned his body. Clarantha says that this is a bad time to be, like, doing this, like, hanging up the photos, but that he made a promise and he'll stick to it. They tell Clarantha that Viron can get him the photos tomorrow. So after this whole conversation, Jackie leaves the art center and goes to Hotel Leo and starts playing blackjack. Molly then goes around and gives a rundown on all the people who are in there, and I think it really shows how much time and energy he spent gambling there. And the people who he introduced we meet again later on, but I'll introduce their names later. Three of the people we meet are Karachi Kid, Yale Menachem, and Golan Yoram. And Molly follows these three people to the terrace where they start to discuss an arms deal that they have going on together. And Manichem asks Karachi if he's ever done business with Colonel Mahatia before, and Karachi answers, by saying that anyone who's ever held a gun in Sri Lanka has done business with Karachi, which I think is important. They argue about the prices of the guns, and Karachi asks who Menachem has done business with and um, includes Molly in that list. Menachem says that he doesn't have anything to do with him and that, quote, he, ha- he was a hippie and a fag. Hippies and fags die. Nothing to do with us. Glad to hear, says Karachi Kid. It's very interesting that Molly is being brought up in this conversation about arms deal and who's done business with what. It's also particularly interesting to me because I feel like, to some extent, all this is being said to give us a more full picture of the workings of the Sri Lankan kind of corrupt economy, arms deal, danger side. But we've gotten so much information on it with so many different characters that at least I don't really feel like anything's really being, like, zoomed in on. Like, I Mm -hmm. feel like we just have so much, so many moving parts Mm -hmm. in this that I'm just realizing how big it is. Yeah, that's so true. In the next section, Molly watches Jackie play blackjack with a coworker who joined her. They make their way to the balcony and Molly sees the van again that had been following Jackie parked out front. Ranchigato and the mask are in the van and we learn that Elsa got away and boarded a plane to Canada. They discuss how they need a plan and Ranchigato says that he has a plan that the major and the minister wouldn't like. We flash back to the night of Molly's death. He had left Kuga and Elsa after telling them that he was done. He was going to gamble his paycheck, cash all his chips, and then follow Didi wherever he went. And he was thinking San Francisco. After he was going to gamble, he had two appointments to go to. 
He joins his favorite table, which is the table with Karachi Kid Menachem and the other members who we saw when Jackie went to play alone in the present. We learn that Molly owes Karachi Kid money, but it seems amiable or at least not super urgent that he pays him back right away. Towards the end of the game, there's a big showdown between all the players, and I want to read an excerpt from the scene because I think it's just like so well written. This is on page 293. You never prayed when you gambled or when you stepped onto a battlefield or when you flat tasted flesh or when you told someone you loved them. You calculated the odds, laid out the options, and then made the play. The chances of being born with extra toes is one in a thousand. The odds that a pilot is drunk in one is one in 117. And according to some, the chances of getting away with murder are three to one. You expected the worst, guessed where the bombs may come from, made the boy wear a condom, asked the laws of probability to swing your way, which isn't the same as pleading to an invisible god, or is it? Jackie loved it when you did the maths. Even though she failed the subject twice in London, right after she told you, right after she told her mother about her stepfather. You pretended she was there. Oh, Jackie-o, even a two of hearts will beat your jacks. On a pot this high, I would fold. There were three hearts on the table and two jacks in your hand. You pushed your stack into the middle. He's going all in on something he knows that he probably won't win. He brings up the chances of being murder or getting away with murder are three in one. There's just like so many different layers. I'm really glad you brought this section up because I actually pulled the quote from that larger quote that says, ask the laws of probability to swing in your way, which isn't the same as pleading to an invisible God, or is it? Mm -hmm. Because that returns us again to religion. And it also reminded me of our medieval literature class Mm -hmm. that we're currently in and how they pray to fortune and they believe of like the blindness and the femininity of fortune as a god Mm -hmm. and when you're looking at the laws of probability that is slightly more concrete in Mm -hmm. quantitative research but that is still believing in some sort of system of governing the world. Yeah, and some sort of chance, too, because probability also has, like, chance factored into that. Molly ends up winning with a full house and tells Karachi Kid that he can finally pay him back. He gets, like, a big pot. Molly goes around paying all his debts at the casino. He runs into the bartender who we know he met up with before he died and made plans with him for after his appointment. He tells himself that this is the last time he will cheat before fully committing to Didi. He then goes and calls Didi, which is the first time we're hearing about this call. He did not, Didi did not mention this to the police at all. We learn that Molly had wanted Didi to come meet him at Hotel Leo at 11 so he could share his big news with Didi, but Didi says that he's tired and that this has come after weeks of not talking to each other, so Didi hangs up and doesn't answer when Molly tries to call him back. After he tries calling Didi back, he then calls his mother. He makes the appointment to get lunch with her to talk that we had previously learned about. Then John Gilhooley and Bob Sundworth show up. And we had previously learned that Molly had met up with a foreigner at Hotel Leo, but he couldn't remember who it was. And that's because it was two foreigners, Johnny and Bob. He tells them that he's quitting and neither of them are excited about it. Johnny asks what happened in his last assignment, and Molly gives him, like, kind of vague answers. Bob says that he understands but doesn't really seem to understand. Johnny finally says to forget him and leaves with Bob. Molly finally describes his last assignment, and it's truly heartbreaking. He had been at a village when it was bombed, and he saw the aftermath of the bombs. And I wanted to read another quote. Page 298. It was an hour after the last shell had dropped and the air was still smoky and smelly. You stumbled through dust and you saw the wailing. But all around you, you saw the wailing. People had stopped running and were rooted at the spot and staring at the heavens and roaring. There was a woman holding a dead child. There was an old man peppered with shrapnel and a stray dog shuddering beneath a broken palmyra. To be quite honest, For those that haven't read the book, pages 298 and 299 
might require a trigger warning to read and discuss in full depth just because it is it's really not intensely graphic but intensely deep content Mm -hmm. it's really just sad it's really just really sad so I want to be careful of that but basically what happens right after Allison's quote is the woman who is holding her dead child sees these capsules around Molly's neck that are hidden behind his other necklaces that are capsules that he wears around his neck in case he gets caught by the LTTE and they try to frame him as a traitor or spy or mm-hmm. try to expedite. Basically, if he gets captured and starts being tortured. Then he can kill himself. Then he can kill himself. So this lady... Sees them. Sees them and basically silently asks him with her eyes and gestures to give her pills so that she can end her pain. So in this section, he gives two pills to her and then he gives two pills to the old man covered in shrapnel and he puts two pills in the stray dog's mouth. Molly is responsible for the deaths of three lives, even if they are Mm -hmm. mercy killings in a way. And I know that you had some strong reactions to that. Yeah, I mean, it's just we knew that Molly might have been a murderer from his ear exam. They said that he might be a murderer. But now we see that he helped people kill themselves. And going back a couple pages, we learned that Molly actually kind of remembered this and that he had killed these people. On page 288, when he's talking to the priest, he says, If I helped people who wanted to die, am I a murderer? How do you know they wanted to die? I saw their suffering. I knew. So if I helped ease some pain, the light should reward me, right? So Molly, like, knows that he did this, and he, like, feels guilty, but he also is thinks he helped them. He doesn't know if he did a good thing or a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, he doesn't know if he did a good thing or a bad thing. And it's just really tragic that he was even put in this position. And I think the reason for him quitting becomes even more illuminated. Yeah, yeah. And we're really able to understand why and question how could he have even done, participated in this vocation for so long. Yeah, it's crazy that he stuck with it and that it was this that finally pushed him to the edge to say, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Back at Hotel Leo... We're back on Molly's final night. Molly meets up with the bartender, and they go up to the terrace and begin to fool around. And the whole time, Molly is thinking of Dee Dee and how, if he wanted to be there, Dee Dee would be, and that Molly might as well enjoy his last time with a new person. As he's zipping his his pants up after, a figure emerges from the shadows, and he recognizes that it's Dee Dee, Dee Dee sees the bartender leaving and begins to charge for him. And the chapter ends with Molly getting a glimpse of Dee Dee's face as he's going for the bartender. And it sounds very violent and sinister. I was shocked. Dee Dee was there the final night that Molly was died. It's just looking more and more complicated. At the, I'm going to tell you, after the last chapter, I was like, oh, I know who killed him. Yeah. Oh, I know. It was like, I was really sure. I was like, it's, it's these people and this is why. I mean, you can go back and listen to me explain it because I, and I felt so proud, but now I really don't know. Well, like I have more thoughts, but it could go any way. Bryn, were there any themes that you wanted to touch on again um, that we didn't get to in our run through? Well, I thought that it would be worth a mention to bring up the second very religiously charged cover page to the next chapter that we've had. Mm -hmm. Earlier in this podcast series, I brought up how there are cover pages to every new chapter, and each of them have a quote on it. 
And this is the first time that the quote is from Scripture. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So not only do we have an author who is familiar with the Bible, but we have an author that quotes a piece of scripture in which God directly addresses people like Molly. This is also a passage in which God wants to be called out to, and he answers in his revealing of knowledge and insight. So this completely juxtaposes our understanding of Molly and or Karuntalaka as believing in a God that isn't worth believing in due to his lack of attention or protection of us. Mm-hmm. This passage claims that God doesn't get numb to our cries, but we know that our protagonist doesn't believe that. Wow. Yeah. So I think that never before have we seen the author implement or demonstrate any knowledge at all of scripture or Mm -hmm. traditional Christian faith or anything like that. And then I just had one point on cultural context. You actually touched on it earlier when Dr. Renee allows us to kind of understand how and what their culture believes in a way. That's kind of how I interpreted it. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure on that. But on page 275, the paragraph at the bottom of that page, we have Dr. Renee saying at the bottom of 275, for every bloody ill in this country, there is a yaka. The black prince causes miscarriages and delivers menstrual cramps. The Mohini seduces lone drivers at night. The Ririyaka spreads cancers. She then goes on to say that Malapretas steal flavor from your food. Javalapretas take the solid from your shit. Most of them are adept at reading ears and appetites. This continues on to page 276 where she says, Yakas are obsessed with pleasures of the skin. When food goes bad, it's because yakas devour the nutrients. When sex loses passion, it's because yakas steal the pleasure. They stand around and watch the living and the foolish invite them in. And we know from previous podcasts and digging that we have done that yakas are devil spirits. Mm -hmm. And so I think what she's describing here is a religious system or a system of belief that they have in place in their culture. I mean, when I get sick, I don't think that it's because a yaka took the nutrients from my food. Mm -hmm. I think I've gotten sick and maybe I'm going to, you know, pray for health, ask my family to pray for health for me. Yeah. So I think that the paralleling of those concepts is interesting and I think it gives insight that makes me wonder why are we receiving this clarification so late in the book Mm -hmm. as opposed to earlier because if this belief system had been revealed to us earlier we might not have wondered so much about what their culture believes and how they believe bad things just happen like they don't believe they just happen they believe that it's devil spirits doing it to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And we've seen in previous chapters that these ghosts and these yakas and the demons have an impact on like the quote-unquote real world that they can whisper, they can make things happen. Cena and his friends caused a car to crash and people died. Like We've seen in previous chapters that it does happen. And so now we are kind of getting insight that there is, there are specific ghosts and pritas and all these things assigned to different aspects of life that go wrong. 
And yeah, it's really interesting that she says that there's no hierarchy, but it kind of seems like there's at least some categories and classifications that they fall into and that they have like a predetermined set. Allison, I would love (laughs) to hear what your question is for this chapter. Okay, this is more of a hypothetical question, but... I love those. Great. At the end of his life, Molly had decided to leave everything behind and get committed to Dee Dee. Do you think he could have done it? Hell no. (laughs) Okay, why? I stand firm in this decision. I have never had such a clear and distinct answer before me in my life. (laughs) And I'm, I'm not sure that I think it has... I, I'm not saying no because of the traumatizing event. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that probably did rewire Molly in a way. I do. And I don't think he will ever forget it. But I don't think he needs to forget it to be with Dee Dee. The reason why I think he couldn't have left everything behind and committed to Dee Dee is because on the night he was killed, he said, this is the last time I'm going to do this before I settle down. We've heard him say that before. Mm-hmm. We've walked with him through his consciousness of shame and guilt of cheating. We've walked through his train of thought of why he does it, how it's compulsive to him how he like needs to do it to survive he I don't think that a traumatic event rewires your ability to be monogamous I think he just isn't and I think he truly believes that's part of who he is because even in the very beginning of the book he described himself as a whore Mm mm-hmm And I think that if you describe yourself as a whore, you have made the decision to make that part of you, to claim that. And I just don't see how, I don't think he's ever demonstrated that he can be that consistent. I'm not sure how capable I think Molly is of having healthy relationships at all, to be honest. I would have to agree with you. The whole time I was like, dude you're not gonna you're not gonna leave a he's not gonna leave the his lifestyle the lifestyle he's living both of his cheating lifestyle and also the lifestyle of him as a photographer I feel like he in a way even though it's really hard and traumatizing he lives for the thrill I think he loves even when he says okay this was the last one he goes back and he does it all again and moving to a new city and getting a fresh start isn't going to change that. Bryn, I would love to hear your question. Before I ask my question, it's pertinent to my question to assert that at this point in the book, I believe Molly killed himself, which I know is kind of jumping to a standby question. I'm not going to touch on it anymore until we get to the standby question. Okay. But because I'm starting to think Molly killed himself, go with me on that train of thought, okay? Okay. Molly kills himself. If he did, do you think he got caught cheating and that's why? Do you think there's another reason given that he was trying to quit? Mm -hmm. And if you can attribute a reason to it, why would you think he would commit suicide? That's kind of a big question. That is a big question, but I really like it. I really like this question. Thank you. I think that partially why he may have killed himself is because he got caught cheating. I think that everything in his life is falling apart. Well, not falling apart, but he's choosing to walk away from a lot in his life. He had this grand idea of fixing his relationship with Dee, Dee, fixing his relationship with his mom, getting a fresh start somewhere new, and all of a sudden in this last two paragraphs, we see that whole idea and that whole plan completely fall apart. Dee, Dee 
finds out that he's been cheating on him and we know that Dee Dee is violent and not the healthiest person their relationship is not healthy I don't think there's any way they could come back from that and I think he saw Dee Dee kind of as like the whole center of this new plan and now that that's gone I think that he would have thought that the rest was all void he because Dee Dee was gone he couldn't have this relationship with his mom he couldn't get out of the war he couldn't get out of his participation in all of the events that have happened I could see how Dee Dee finding out that he was cheating would just completely crumble his whole life plan Bryn I'm gonna ask you who do you think killed Molly wow well let me tell you no one I think Molly took his own life, and this is honestly my first major shift in thinking on, like, the big question of this murder mystery. I don't think it's a coincidence that suicide has been paid very close attention to in the entire novel. Molly has talked to many, quote-unquote, suicides in the in-between, and now we have two people in this chapter who don't believe that he didn't kill himself. And I think that, yes, that could be to just add some more spice to the concoction, but I think that if everything you just said is true, and I think that if DD does leave him, he no longer has an escape plan, He's cashed in all of his chips, gambling. He doesn't have a job. He has a new level of trauma. I think he could have yeah. just killed himself, honestly. Yeah. He already tried once. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think life could be that unbearable for him again. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how you got there. I have kind of two working theories right now. Well, I guess three if you count my last one. Well, no, this one includes new characters in my old one. <laughs> <laughs> Give it so I'll, I'll start with the new one. Um, I think that Dee Dee and Molly may have had a big blowout fight. And I think maybe Dee Dee killed him because we've heard in the previous chapters that Dee Dee can get physically violent with Molly. He's hit him before. And at the end of this chapter, like, if you go and read it, it's scary. That's my first new one. My second theory is the one that I've been working on for a while. So it's like my baby project. <laughs> it's my passion project. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, we were introduced to Karachi Kid, who claims that he's done work with everyone who's ever held a gun in Sri Lanka. I'm thinking that maybe Bob and Karachi Kid are tied together somehow and they conspired together to kill Molly because Bob didn't want Mo- didn't like that Molly knew that Bob was doing like deals with um the colonel at in the LTTE and all that shady stuff was going on so and now Molly's leaving and I think maybe Bob is getting scared and he's like yo Karachi kid like help me kill Molly. Bryn, what's a quote or a moment that stuck with you which you think is worthy of bringing to our attention today? I actually have something pretty interesting to bring to the table today. Okay. I'm really proud of this one. In the section Chat with Dead Suicides from pages 286 to 290, there are three years included in the title of that section. 1986... 1979 and 1712. In that section, he speaks about three suicides. A girl in a tie with fetid skin, a hunched figure, and then a closeted homo. It seemed to me like the author knows when these people died and perhaps they aren't random figures thrown in for the plot perhaps they're real people and we are sort of reimagining their life after death oh i really like that 
On page 268, this is at the very beginning of the chapter when Dr. Renee takes Molly to the Sea of Dreams. And I'm just going to read short quotes. Um, So 268 to 269, it says, You look around at the sea of clouds that surround you, each with a turquoise pool rippling at its center, invisible to the distant world down there. This is where my dreams are. I come here many times to visit him and my girls. My husband, the father of my babies, he supported me, though he didn't agree with me. He stopped all politics after I died. He's down there looking after my girls. He's a lovely father. And I visit him in my dreams. And I visit him in dreams and tell him whenever I can. I just really love the thought that loved ones can come and make the conscious choice to visit you in your dreams even after their death. And I love that Dr. Renee visits her husband and her daughters whenever she can. And I think it's just a really beautiful thought. And like later on, we see her hugging her husband and one of her daughters. And it was just like, as I was reading it, like it brought like like tears to my eyes. I was like, wait, this is really sweet and tender. And I think it would just be a really good thing to end on after such a heavy chapter on a little bit of a lighter note about dreams. Yeah, I think that was a really sweet part. And I think also since Dr. Renee is portrayed as such a strong mm-hmm. woman that we're not really given background to, I think that this really shows a completely different side mm-hmm. to who she is. Well, guys... This is the end of the fifth moon. Next time we will be reading the sixth moon. And I cannot wait because I want to know what happened to Molly. (laughs) Me too, sister. (laughs) Me too. So until then, have a great rest of your night. Have a great rest of your day, morning, evening, afternoon. And we hope that someone you love visits you in your dreams. Oh, yeah. Bye. Bye.